All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? How's it going? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Thank you for, for joining us. Sit down. Take a load off. Bundle up. Are you sitting there by a fire? Are you wearing a hat? Is it cold where you are? Christmas is coming. Hanukkah is coming. Uh, so many holidays. Do I need a list? Is Kwanzaa now? What's happening? When I, the, the truth of the matter is, is that you know, I'm not trying to be disrespectful in any way, but uh, I don't really engage with, uh, with the holidays. I just know that there is a drastic shift in the tone outside. Either it's chilly or cold or quiet or gray or um, things seem to, uh, to just slow way down. Emails start diminishing that the pace of those everything i i just feel a a cultural um easing up which is fine uh getting into it immediately you know getting into it easing into it myself when i realize it's happening is is a little not traumatic but i'm like what's going on is everybody okay why is everything how come no one's where's everybody what's happening is it the zombie apocalypse where what's what's going on did did something go off and everyone left? Did, am I am I missing something? Today on the show we have uh, Derek Trucks, the guitar wizard, the slide guitar wizard, who uh, I was excited to talk to. I didn't know what to expect because you know he is a child prodigy and he really took it to a you know, he really you know he did not become like some child prodigies become sort of like these freaks that uh, are sort of paraded around by their parents or or some. You know, morally corrupt manager to do their one or two tricks to cash in. And that could have happened to Derek, but uh, we talked about it. His father wouldn't let that happen. And, you know, very early on, he evolved into quite a thoughtful and uh, professional and uh, uh, creative exploratory musician. And he was great to talk to. So look forward to that coming up shortly. I, you know, it was weird. Last night I, I, I watched uh, that uh, La La Land. There's been a lot of attempts at doing uh, film musicals that have not panned out. Uh, it's tricky business and not necessarily a particularly um, popular form. But I got to be honest with you, this La La Land thing with uh, Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone was really moving and touching. And the story was uh, was great. And the the framing of the musical was very traditional. And it was a real sort of love letter to Los Angeles past and present and to movies past and present and to the nature of uh, show business, but also to the nature of uh, difficult love and and loving somebody, but maybe not having them be the right person at that time and having those struggles. I, there's a there, it just I, I was surprised. You know, I, I, I the, the movie opened up and there was a big musical number and a dance number and in a traffic jam and I'm like oh boy here we go but then as it evolved because of the performances of of Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone which were very you know kind of very human and almost raw and then the music was a uh, I think a little understated there were some beautiful songs and the dancing was just enough and uh just the the cinematic work was very simple but very effective you know close-ups were used properly um and uh the emotions of it were just were just beautiful and the, the fantasy versus reality element was uh, tremendous but it was really framed like i think a classic uh, film musical 
Now, the thing that bothers me about it is that I, I don't know if it's me or culture or what, because I know the, the movie's doing pretty well, but, uh, you know, th- that heyday of musicals, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, and, and I could be because I'm no, I'm no uh, film historian, but I think the heyday was really uh, during some of the worst times in America. <laughs> I think that the relief of uh, that the musical brought the, the world and, and this nation um, was at its peak when I, I believe the depression was on and wartime was on. And I, maybe I'm wrong. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going to, I'm going to feel it that way. Cause I, I, I think that the, the power of a musical and a love story and, and something so escapist in a way, but so directly connected uh, to our hearts and to our, uh, the human experience on that level. Uh, but it elevates, uh, but able to elevate you into sort of a fantastic realm where, you know, I realized when I was watching it, it's like, hey, everything's going away. And I would try to bring everything back. And then I'm like, why do it? Why do it? Don't bring it back. Just enjoy the sweet love story and the dancing and the power. Like, I'm like, I was very conscious of, of what it was providing me because it was just pure joy with a slight bit of heartache. And, uh, it's a it's a sweet movie, and that that Emma Stone is really good, and I already liked Ryan Gosling, but uh, yeah, there's one song in there, the song that she sings at her last audition about her aunt. Wow, it was great, and there was like a moment in there where I'm like, that's an interesting lyric. That's you know, that's some honest shit. So emails, did I burn up all my time? No, I've got plenty of time. It's my show. Uh, this first email, Shadow Governments. Hey, Mark, I don't know about any shadow governments. Maybe everything is very compartmentalized. I was a CIA analyst for two years and then in Marine Corps Intel for a year after 9-11. Everyone who I knew in the CIA were just good people, probably even the office a-hole who worked in cubicles and who wanted to believe we helped keep America and its allies safe. We wanted to avoid D.C. traffic. We loved escaping to Chinatown for long lunches when the bosses were on vacation. We talked sports, pop stars, and how we were going to get our kids through college. We had birthday party planning committees and waited to see who would eat the most rum balls at the holiday party. Political diversity was no different than any other work environment I have been a part of. Just men and women trying to do something good and hoping to get home early enough to have dinner and watch a little tv with the family love your podcast i wrote to you once before i think i might have offended you sorry if i did fight the good fight james i don't know all this stuff lunches in chinatown you know talking sports pop stars you know how you're gonna get your kids through college birthday party planning committees this sounds like a front for the shadow government to me i don't know james i'm kidding Thank you for uh, clearing what the work environment at the CIA is up for me. I, I don't know if I feel better, but but I, I feel that you're being honest. I feel better. Thank you for serving. All right, let's let's read a, a couple other emails. Hanukkah, Hanukkah, baby. I just wanted to balance it out. Um, this one is, these are a little more emotional and I think there's a element of gratitude and hope. Right. Uh, subject line, Casey Affleck. And the greeting was greeting you old Jew. Always nice. Well, you finally hit the interview that made me pull over and cry. Casey. 
I grew up in poverty, not the romantic poverty from novels, but the real kind where your father abandons you in the dead of winter and your mother has been married and or making babies since 14. I was raised in Gastonia, North Carolina. My childhood was anything and everything desperate and disparate as anything you've read or heard from others. No need to rehash the details. Fast forward to now, I'm a full-blown alcoholic. I self-medicate terrible panic attacks and depression with the drink. I have no other vices, but liquor seems to be enough to turn my life into something I don't recognize about once a month, kind of like a period, only if it were Satan's period. I've been to rehab, 12 steps, all the bells and whistles, pretty solid for the past five years, but I haven't hit my point yet. The interview with Casey has given me some hope. As you well know, the shame and self-loathing of addiction is the boiling point. I've swept through birthdays, been wasted through school events, missed Christmas, left jobs before they could fire me, busted my eyebrow open on a door jam, ripped off a toenail, driven drunk, thrown up everywhere and every place you can imagine. My kids have seen quite a bit of this. Newsflash, you can't hide things from your kids, even if you think you are. I have all the trappings of codependency, social anxiety, hyper-intellect, but stifled by by my own pains and general dysfunction. When Casey talked about being okay with his dad and told some of those stories, I've definitely slept through pizza dinners with my kids and turned up bruised from falls, I had to pull over. His whole stream of consciousness about that gave me hope. I was so worried that I have hurt my kids to the point of no return. When he talked about his kids telling him he's the worst dad with the reply, let me tell you about the worst dad, then he said they'd be okay too if they had to deal with that. When he talked about Ben, rehab, and his whole family's recovery, I was sobbing in my car. So congratulations, Marin. Your show finally hit me in a good way. So I say thank you for what you do. I can guarantee you touch a heart every episode. From the garage, you're saving lives, and you probably just saved mine. I haven't felt the same since. Somehow that interview relieved the crippling self-hatred just enough where I could see the other side. I could see full recovery. I love you and the world loves you. Even the people who put spinach in your lox eggs and and well-grilled onions love you. From a place in my heart, I cannot describe Bonnie. (sighs) Thank you, Bonnie. And I'm glad you had that moment and and really um, stick with it. Stick with it. Uh, This one is, uh, this next email is a, a pretty funny one. Has to do with dads. This is from Brett. I spent most of my 20s growing resentful of my father. When I turned 30, I decided to stop drinking and began dealing with my emotional life. I broke the deafening silence with my father and attempted to build a relationship with him. Your podcast, and specifically your fearless dialogue around father-son dynamics, has been hugely helpful in understanding my complicated relationship with my father. WTF is the first place I heard the words narcissism and codependency, which helped give me a context, language, and framework for understanding seemingly irrational and hurtful behavior. You also have taught me to be more compassionate with my father. It's easy to get mired in my own pain and forget that my father is a whole person and has probably done more good than bad in the world. So thank you for reminding me, as hard as it may be, to always return to love and compassion and forgive our parents. Which brings me to the present and what compelled me to write. I recently returned to my childhood home in Maryland to help care for my father, who has been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. It is difficult for us to communicate during this challenging time, but one thing we can always connect on and share is WTF. After a less than cheery morning of silence, injections, and IVs, we returned to the car, and my father, consulting his iPhone, lit up with excitement and chirped, Jerry Lewis, WTF. 
I agreed, and off we went. You said you were reluctant to air it because the interview was cut short, but I'm so grateful you did. A quarter of the way through the interview, I heard my father sniffling and wiping his eyes. I asked why this was making him so emotional. He is an only child, and his love and escape was going to the movies with his mother. He told me he and his mother saw every movie that Jerry and Dean did together. I piped in and said, oh, you're feeling nostalgic about going to the movies with your mother. To my surprise, he tearfully replied, no, not that. It's how devastated I was when Jerry and Dean broke up. I held back my laughter with all my might. In this moment, for the first time, I understood why what was on the TV was always more important than what was going on with our family. My father has emotional connections with people in the movies and on TV. These are his friends. Thank you for giving us something to laugh about at this time in our lives when laughs are hard to come by. Boomer lives. Warm regards, Brett. That's just like my dad, Brett. And if your dad's like my dad, if you guys are sitting there listening to this right now, he'll either get a real kick out of it or he'll feel like you shouldn't have sent the email. So I hope that doesn't cause any trouble. (laughs) Derek Trucks, guitar wizard. And also a very uh, charming, uh, intelligent, and thoughtful guy and has some great stories about mentors and, and just you know being how good he was at such an early age. Uh, and I also want to say the Tedeschi Trucks Band will be on tour throughout the U.S. in January and February. You can go to TedeschiTrucksBand.com for tour dates. So here now are, are me and Derek Trucks. Boy, you must have a good humidor on the bus there because this one's nice and soft. Yeah, we have, we have a we have a little fella that we oh, keep, yeah? we keep flush. That's a thing. <laughs> well, I'm excited. I didn't know I'd be smoking a Cuban right now, but I'm gonna do it. So you're down south. Where'd you grow up? Jacksonville, Florida. You grew up in Skinner Land. Yeah. So the it, the funny thing is, the Almond Brothers formed in Jacksonville. Yeah. And then Skinner later on, and my dad, he he was always the the Skinner thing was the more redneck side of things. Right. And the Almond Brothers were maybe it was an interracial band. It was a little more forward thinking. And so my dad was pretty anti Skinnered. Like it wasn't <laughs> he just he's like fuck those rednecks. Like he just didn't like the whole I mean the rebel flags right, and all right. of that. And so I grew up around that scene. I mean all those guys, Artemis Pyle, yeah, Ed King, Randall Hall, uh, yeah. Leon Wilkerson. I'd yeah. always see them and most of them were pretty nice fellas it seemed that i would play with him <laughs> as a kid yeah you grew up around him because your uncle was was in the allman brothers your uncle was uh was uh, butch. butch trucks and your dad's his brother yeah no so i grew up around them because in the small blues scene yeah. going on in jacksonville at the time those guys were still in and around it they all still lived in the area so right the skinner guys yeah, were always yeah. around but it was funny because my dad was just he just wasn't having it. <laughs> he was, I mean, he was at some of the Fillmore shows. Like he saw yeah. Hendrix right. at the Atlanta Pop. Right. Like he's right. a, a music nut, but that that side of it, he would always kind of tamp down. And later on, I would listen back to some of the records and be like, "No, oh, there's actually some good stuff there." Like, sure, man. Some, and so the funny thing is now, where our studio is in the swamp in in Jacksonville, my parents ended up buying the house four doors down from me, and uh, they're. 
the the house right next to them was uh alan collins's house <laughs> this, oh, it was yeah. like it was like the skinnered party pad <laughs> and when we moved in the neighborhood some of our neighbors uh I, I could tell they were a little apprehensive about having musicians and the the guy across the street he was like i was the one that found the car in the ditch with his girlfriend like alan collins drunk drove into the ditch with like multiple people in his car and then split and split went to his house and so when we moved in i was like yeah we're uh we're a different kind of musician <laughs> i was like we'll keep it between the lines i promise so it, it took us a while to uh to gain slight acceptance <laughs> as we're bringing the property values down it's so funny because like you know i grew up like i'm 52 so you know skinner had a lot of you know charting hits at the time and i had a friend who was really into skinner and i sort of defend skinner and i defend acdc and i did like uh, because my generation of people i i you know i don't want to get too heady and, and yeah, we don't yeah. have to feel guilty about it anymore yeah. but those guys <laughs> could play all right they could they, they could and they wrote some great tunes no doubt about it but, but when, when you when you put them up next to Dwayne and barry no, and yeah, the exploratory I, stuff right. it was it was a different order of Definitely. being no that, that's right <laughs> yeah. they, they sort of like commercialized the south in a way that that fit a time i guess yeah I, and and i think for me a lot of times it's uh Usually it comes down to what was your intention and but sometimes it's beyond that. It's like what what is the wake that you left behind you? And I think I they think left people, a lot of wakes, literally. Yeah, they yeah. literally left <laughs> That's a, true. a lot of wakes. But they, you know, I, I think people glommed on to the wrong part of their music and message and that right. that kind of was right. blown out of proportion. So I, I think sometimes the baby does get thrown out sure. <laughs> with the bathwater. But it's funny. So you're a kid and you're you're actually part of that Jacksonville blues scene. Like you're going out. You got your guitar when you were nine. When did when you first picked up the guitar, you grew up music was certainly familiar to you, I assume. Yeah, there was always records spinning in the house. Always always good vinyl. I mean really at that time it was the Layla record. My parents, uh, the Fillmore East record. My mom was a big Joni Mitchell fan. My dad, it was B.B. King and Elmore James. So those are the records I was hearing. Um, and when I started playing, you know, at that age, you don't really question things. If it's fun and you right. you take to it, you just do it. It wasn't like I sat around practicing and loved it so much. It was just like I'd play baseball, I'd pick up a guitar, and I'd, me and my dad would play a little bit. And then What's he play? Uh, well, he just played a, enough guitar to like woo girls for a minute, and that. But he never played on stage, never professionally. But he'd um, been around it because of his brother. Totally, he'd been yeah. around the music scene. But then I started sitting in at this local blues bar. How old? Nine. <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was quite a scene. I, I remember the second or third time I was there. First time it was just me and this a guitar teacher I was playing with at the time, and it was just the two of us. And then. Uh, and then it was with the this local band, uh, this singer named Ace Moreland from Oklahoma. He was, uh, I think he was maybe half Cherokee. Yeah. He was, he was a striking looking dude and yeah. uh, amazing singer. Played a lot of wolf tunes. Yeah. I, like the first Howlin' Wolf I heard was from him. Um, and I would start sitting in with that band, but the only guy I knew was a drummer, so I just faced him. I, I wouldn't even turn around to the audience. <laughs> so two or three songs a night I would play with them, but I, I met Coco Taylor there when I was nine. I, uh, Ivan Neville, who reminded me recently, he's like, we played together when you were nine years old. <laughs> I was like, I remember that now. So, but when you're nine and you just, what, like, I guess there's something I'm trying to understand that probably is not necessarily explainable, but you just could hear and play what you know you 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 instinctively knew 
Yeah, you know, and, and it was growing up. I mean, my dad used to put us, me and my brother, yeah, bunk beds. We used to put us to bed to like the Fillmore record or Eat a Peach. or So I'd fall asleep, and it was really the sound of Dwayne's slide and then this Elmore James record that was just kind of... Like the greatest hits? Um, yeah, yeah, it yeah. was, with like Hawaiian Boogie and... Yeah, like his double, my, double album? Totally, with yeah. the, the, two, the two kids on the cover. Yeah, 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 <laughs> right. Um, so I think that stuff was just there, and when I first picked up an instrument, and my dad showed me how to play uh, Librera in A minor, just the melody, the right. simple melody, there's this thing that this light bulb that goes off. You're like, oh, that's that sound I've been hearing. Right. And then uh, a friend brought over a slide around the same time, and that even made more sense because I had been listening to Elmore and Dwayne, and my hands were small, so fretting a guitar was kind of a pain. Yeah, yeah. So the slide was just easier, and I could get to those notes. And it's it's just it's fun to try to pull those ghosts and those sounds out of an instrument. I mean, that's kind of what we're all doing sure. in, until you've – find your own voice but then it's essentially the same thing you're just you're kind of you're trying to mine for gold right <laughs> you're well, just that, trying to find this thing well that's the trick that's what's like it's it's not unusual for somebody who's called a prodigy to become like a like a sort of dancing monkey totally yeah. totally <laughs> you know like because you're a novelty act absolutely and and i was really fortunate um i think my my dad always says he's a, he's an atheist, but the way he is moved by music and the yeah. way he thinks about music is it's one of the few sacred things to him. It's like family and music. Uh-huh. But like I, I would see him listen to a Ray Charles track and you know just goosebumps or tears, and I was like, something's up right. <laughs> with you. Like there's more to the story. But the way he would talk about seeing Dwayne or Dickie Betts in the in the heyday or. Um, I mean, he would take us, he took us to see Miles when I was too young to, I mean, I remember the images of it, but he, there was a jazz festival in Jacksonville. He was always, it was always music. So like late Miles, like synthesized oh yeah, horn. To- totally. Like yeah. With glasses. Foley on the, <laughs> on the, on the tenor guitar. And, um, but so he, he was never into the, the scene or like exploiting the, your kid for, for gain it right, was like right. the music part is what was important to him and we would run into a lot of other kid guitar players that were doing the uh the stevie ray vaughn clone thing and there'd be these stage moms and dads that were like you got to walk out in the crowd you got to talk to the audience and, and my dad is like no, i will i'll never pull that stuff with you <laughs> don't you worry like it, right so it wait was, there was a whole sort of like community of child blues guitar well, you, players you would just run into him and i remember you know around that time there was uh <laughs> there was all these guys popping up when yeah. i was 13 14 the johnny langs kenny wayne shepherds oh yeah Bonamassa, all those guys they were all kind of were they oh he was a, a kid too we're all the same age you know we we're all you, you and Bonamassa. so they flew Bonamassa down when i was 12 he was 13 they flew him down to jacksonville to back when there used to be radio stations yeah. that had budgets they're like right. it's gonna be the battle of the kid guitar players north and south and they flew him down and, <laughs> and it was just the oddest thing they they put us with this weird house band and yeah we played the landing on the river it was just such a shit show <laughs> and and what, what but, happened so there's speaking out of school but there was one moment where uh you know and he's a kid so yeah I, i'm sure he's people change but, he's over it now man yeah, yeah but there, there was a moment where he uh we we took a break and he said something like dad go get me a coke like thirsty and, and my dad looked at me he popped me he's like you ever pull that shit i'll beat your ass in front of everyone here i was like, i didn't even do anything man <laughs> so dad was always he was always really good about making sure that it didn't go to your head he, like 
I remember at one point, things were starting to roll a little bit. I was, I was a kid, and he was like, you know, you've been walking a little bit different lately. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not. He's like, no, you are. <laughs> I don't really like it very much. <laughs> so he was- Keep he was, in check. Absolutely. And and man, I I think I appreciated it at the time, but I certainly appreciate that shit now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. I bet. Keep you humble. Absolutely. Well, that's hilarious for me. So Kenny Wayne Shepherd, John Bonamassa, that's his name, right? You, and there was another one? Well, there, there, was, a, there was a bunch. Some made it, some didn't. But there was, you know- the. Every blues club, there would be f- a few house bands that would yeah. play, and there was a, a circuit, and then yeah. there would be this little wonder kind <laughs> kid that was playing, and most of them were doing the same stuff. Like, it was mostly Stevie Ray Vaughan clones. Yeah. And and there was something about it that just, I had a total aversion to it. And I loved Stevie, and I loved Albert King and all the stuff it came from, but right. I didn't like kids wearing hats and <laughs> like playing <laughs> with the same instrument i was like it was a different thing so it, i think that helped me avoid trying to go down that road or get like the singer in the band where you're going to get some weird rock radio hit at 15 and, <laughs> and then <laughs> so, fade away yeah so I, I i was lucky that that stuff just kind of i think your instinct just, but that wasn't your thing though either you weren't a stevie ray guy you're probably the only one playing the slide at that time right that's true it was a little different and and i ran into some some musicians early on that kind of pointed me down a different path. Uh, there's this guy named Colonel Bruce Hampton in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and he's kind of he says he's a minor league baseball coach for, yeah. for musicians. Like it, a lot of people come through him, and he he'll take talented musicians and he'll kind of shatter them into a thousand pieces, and then they reform as just more realized what's humans. His, really? What's his job? What's I mean, no, he's a musician. He's a singer, player. Where, and from Atlanta? Yeah. Um, and you met him where? I, I met him. We played a club with him uh, when I was 12. He had a band called the Aquarium Res- Rescue Unit, and it was O'Teal Burbridge on bass who ended up playing in the Almond Brothers. It was Jimmy Herring on guitar. Yeah. It was just super musicians. Yeah. Um, but the Colonel was this fascinating character. Dwayne Almond got him signed to Columbia when, in 1970. Yeah. The, the Hampton Grease Band. Yeah. And his his claim to fame is uh, the second lowest selling double record ever on <laughs> Columbia behind a yoga record. So this, this is the type of character the Colonel is. Yeah. He can spew baseball stats all day long. Right. But he, you know, he, he would... Uh, he would hit me with the right book or the right record at the right time or turn me on to Sunhouse or, um, you know, the the aspects of Howlin' Wolf's thing that you should really be focusing in on. Or, Which were what? Well, just Hubert Sumlin and just the right. band and the whole thing. And he, yeah. had, I mean, he had seen Wolf a dozen times and just stories. And um, he's the one that bought me a Love Supreme and, oh, right. uh, you know, turned me on to Sun Ra and just You need all that this. guy. Usually so, it's an older brother, but in your no, league. No, but it, the Colonel, it was that. And, and he would... Every time I would see him, he would kind of check in. He's like, I think you're ready for this. And he'd give me a Krishnamurti book or like, like it was yeah, just yeah. Me, like when he thought you were ready to take it on, he would, he would hit me with this amazing record or this literature or whatever. So when you go up there and you're 12 doing your, uh, you know, boy genius tour, what is he, <laughs> what is he, what's the first thing he hit you with? I, I think the first thing we connected on was probably Howlin' Wolf or Bob, yeah. Bobby Bland, maybe. Right. That was the stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, and then the the deep Delta Blues stuff, like Book of White and right. Sunhouse. And, and that was- Sunhouse. That's a great, that record, the Death Letter record. Oh, man. You can, it doesn't get better. It's insane. That's the- Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that's the- that's when you're really digging down. <laughs> you're hitting bedrock at that right. point. I can't, like, listening to Skip James is- uh, I you know I I've never heard anything like that to it's, this day. It's really. eerie, man. It's eerie. I, yeah. And there's another guy that came out of the same county. Uh, 
is it Bentonia in yeah. Mississippi, this guy named Jack Owens, yeah. who was Skip's protege, and he recorded into the 80s and 90s when he was 80 or 90 years old, and it's pretty haunting stuff, man. Yeah. Uh, Devil Got My Woman, Same, a lot of the same tunes. Yeah. Cherry Ball, he right. does all of those. But there's some great recordings of Jack Owens. Last time we were in the area, I took my son, I rented a car, we were in Jackson, and we drove to uh, Skip James's old homestead, and we drove to Jack Owens's spot, and we hit some of the blues trail. It was it was a good day. It was cool? Oh, yeah. I, my son's 14 now. I think he was 13. We just listened to Delta Blues all day, and I just tried to put him in it. Yeah. Did <laughs> it was, he get it? Oh, yeah. He's He's got good ears, and he... You know he's he's a he's an em, he empathy sympathy he he he'll go in like yeah. he's he's a he's a sweet kid. Is he playing anything? Does he play a, a little bit? My daughter plays a little bit more than my my son. She's she's always writing and singing, and she's pretty fearless that way. It's kind of funny that we're talking about it, and uh, you know we we didn't even mention Robert Johnson. That's a rare thing. See, that's that's an evolution yeah. of the uh, knowledge of the blues that's true. culturally. Totally, because be, you know, ten years ago, that's, even that's it was all there was. Just Robert Johnson. Totally. That's all anyone talked yeah. about. And he's obviously great. Sure. Yeah. But sure. there were people that came before and after. Sure. <laughs> and I mean, during. I, I don't listen to that record. Yeah. It's a difficult record to listen to because you got to really kind of like get on it and like you know hear it. Totally. Where's but some when, of the other when you stuff? hear Charlie Patton or those other guys, it uh, jumps out of the speakers. Uh, Bow Bo 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 Weevil Blues, Weevil, totally it's crazy man. <laughs> or Pony Blues, that and stuff it's just is, his voice. Like, yeah, it's like a drunk frog or yeah. something. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yeah, Jack White's a big. Uh, I went to Jack White's studio to interview him, and he, he's got a huge painting of that one portrait. Yes. Oh yeah, that's a powerful of look, Charlie right Patton. So we played Dockery Farms this last year, where Charlie Patton. All those guys lived and came from. I mean, it was one of the biggest plantations in Mississippi, and uh, all the buildings are still there. The cotton gin, all the stuff. Do they what they preserved? They keep them there on purpose, kind of deal. The last twenty years, they came back in and, and preserved it for that reason. And uh, it's a it's a pretty heavy spot. I mean, there's the commissary where where Charlie Patton would apparently every every Saturday. Yeah. All the all the workers would get paid in script. Uh huh. And, uh, well, that's the money, plantation money. Plantation money with Dockery yeah. printed right on it. And there'd be about a thousand people waiting to go in the commissary yeah. and get their pay. So Patton and Willie Brown or whoever was coming through would park it on the stoop and play, get everyone worked up. And then there's a little bridge over the uh, Sunflower River. And Charlie Patton would rent out the little cottage for the, for the night. They'd take all the furniture out. They'd put mirrors like eight mirrors up and around it with gas lamps so the place lit up from the yeah. inside and they would have they would it would be it would be this throw together juke joint uh -huh. and they they charge 50 cents to cross the river and he would just make bank and apparently Charlie Patton was amongst everyone there was just running always had sunday clothes on had a car yeah. like he was yeah but he he while everyone's getting paid he's playing on the stoop and no one heard anything from Saturday to Saturday, you're in the field working. There's no electricity. Right. You don't hear music. Right. You know, unless it's singing in the field. Right. So this is an electrifying thing that's going on. Good you know? device with the mirrors. Totally. Good and, thinking. And absolutely. And, and they, they said word spread, and it became like all the traveling Delta guys would go to Dockery and play. Howlin' Wolf. So that's House, where it all started all to come together. Pop Staples was, grew up on that plantation. It's no shit. It's a pretty heavy spot. It's, wow. It's worth checking out. What well, what you don't well, I think what we lose because especially if you 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 romanticize that that music yeah is the hustle 
you know, these guys did a lot of gigs. Yeah. And they not just music gigs. They were working all kinds whatever of angles. Whatever it took, man. Yeah. Whatever it took. And and you know, even being at Dockery, it was it's it's you're a little conflicted because, you know, they had the original plantation house there. Mm-hmm. And then there's all the stuff that's left. Um and then the band, some of the band was gonna stay at the plantation house and there's guys in their bands like I don't feel comfortable being in there. Like this, this doesn't feel right. Right. I mean, our yeah, yeah. our group is pretty evenly split. Right. <laughs> we got there's the Caucasians, and we got we and there were a lot of people in the band that were like, there was some people were like, no, I'm staying in that house tonight. Right. <laughs> Just, and getting, other people were like, you know what? I can't do it. It doesn't. It doesn't one feel they, one, right. One of them wanted to fight the ghost. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and I was like, you know what? I ain't, I ain't touching that. That's interesting. So, but it felt that way being there. Like even the fact that it's preserved. Like people need to know about this, but like you said, you can't romanticize it too much, right? Like it, when they're telling the stories, they're like, "Yeah, an old Mister Dockery, he let everyone play." I was like, "Yeah, okay. yeah. so maybe let just, them yeah, play." So they, so they would keep from just, <laughs> just ripping the house down. Right. I don't know, right? But it, it's a there's a lot of history to unpack with that stuff. No shit. <laughs> when I met Susan, we were on the road and, um. She had done a few gigs with John Lee Hooker. What was her name? She just had the Susan Tedeschi band, right? Yeah. Yeah. I remember them. She's great. So she had done a few few shows with John Lee Hooker, and then my band got the call. It was 99-2000, New Millennium, New Year's Eve. We had just booked our highest paid gig ever in Telluride with my group, and then we got the call to be the third band before john lee hooker at the maritime for like no cash and i called our manager i was like you know what we got to do man <laughs> we're canceling that tell your right show really <laughs> i was like we I, I was like i gotta see john lee hooker while he's still around and, right and i was like you had your priorities i was in you know <laughs> the 99 2000 we're like this is important stuff yeah and so we went out and uh we did our little set and then uh john lee hooker invited he 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 loved Sue. He was all about her. So he yeah. invited her backstage before the show, and we we go back there, and he's uh he was so sweet. He was like, uh, ba- "Baby, where are you living now?" And she's like, "Well, I'm I'm gonna move in with Derek if he lets me." And he looks at me, he goes, he kind of stutters a little. He's like, "You you you be a damn fool not to." And I was like, "All right, it's it's done. <laughs> Consider it done." And he's like, "Well." If you're out here, I got seven houses. You can stay at any one of them. <laughs> I was like, this is beautiful. And I was like, Sue, if you want to go hang with John Lee Hooker, who am I <laughs> yeah, to <right>. stop you? <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to deny but, you that. But he had us on stage for the for the countdown, and it was just such a blues countdown because it's, I mean, this is Y2K. Everyone's losing their minds, and he he has these two chick singers who are half drunk. And yeah. They're counting down from 20, and they're just kind of stumbling it. And I'm like, the New Year's was about two minutes ago. (laughs) And we're standing on stage, and John Lee gave Sue uh, his 335 that looks like yours, and she's playing his guitar, and he's kind of leading the charge, and she's got a bottle of Cristal that somebody had handed her. I was like, this is a a good night. Yeah, great night. (laughs) This is the way way to do it. If it ends now, I'm perfectly content (laughs) with this. We didn't have kids yet. I didn't have anyone to think about. It was beautiful. (laughs) It was a good day. Real Blues New Year. All right, so now you make your first record when you're how old? Fifteen or sixteen, I think. Well, I mean, we you know we did some other throwaways that I try to pretend didn't happen before that. Like we, when I was twelve but the, or thirteen, but, we went into the studio with Buddy Miles and did a, a track or two. And there's this little cassette tape with this awful drawing on it. There's with some, you, Buddy Miles. Some, yeah, there's some blackmail material out there. Where'd you, where'd you like, I guess like you were just around these guys. Cause they, if you think about it, I guess 
the blues community is not huge. No, it's in the the touring world, especially at the small level. Yeah, you're playing the the clubs that yeah. are out there. It's a small world. You run into everybody. Right. You run into almost everybody. When I was in when I was in college, they had a place called uh, Jonathan Swift's in Harvard Square that later became a comedy club, actually. But I saw Willie Dixon there, and I saw Big Mama Thornton there. Wow. Uh, you know when then they were both almost dead. Yeah, yeah. And it was pretty. It was pretty heartbreaking, but beautiful. No, I hear you. I you hear know you. what I mean? You know, the, at the end with BB, it was that way. But then I was like, you know what? If you get to be in that dude's presence, <laughs> count yourself lucky. Did you play with him? Yeah, we did a few tours with him. We we were out with him for quite a bit. Some some of my favorite memories have have been on stage with BB. There was there was one here in Los Angeles the Hollywood Bowl where we went and sat in with him and, and won at Royal Albert Hall. But he was so sweet. He was a yeah. He was a prince of a human being, man. And he was really like, because I noticed, like I saw you guys at the bowl and, you know, you know, B.B. King, you know, he would play with an orchestra sometimes, right? And you were kind of a conductor up <clears> there too. Like I could see you playing and Susan singing, but like there were moments there where you got a lot of instruments up there, a lot of people, <laughs> right. and you're watching everything and you're like, okay, you're conducting yeah. to some degree. That's part of the deal, man. It's, it's hurting cats is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and like I hadn't seen, like because I think B.B. had to do some of that, right? Totally. I mean, towards the end, his band knew him so well that they would just kind of follow right. whatever trip he was on. But he, yeah, he, it, it was, there was some unique moments because I had met him quite a few times over the years, but never played with him. Yeah. And the the first time that we played together was on stage at uh, Royal Albert Hall. And I remember, wow. I remember just playing a BB lick and him yelling and then playing it back. And I was like, oh, that was pretty sweet. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, we just had a conversation, a musical conversation. It's very like, specific licks with him. Totally. I mean, he, there's a thing. There's a sound that he got out of the instrument that everybody after him dug into. Because I've been realizing that lately, just in playing my own bad blues, is that you, you know the phrasing and the simplicity made some of these guys. That's it. Yeah. I and mean, it's it's. And then you get these newer guys that as time goes on, they keep filling in more and more gaps. Totally. And you, sometimes you lose it. it and it um, really should go the other way. I think so. You should be paring it down and perfecting it. And I remember just recently watching this documentary, uh, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And he's it's this sushi chef in Tokyo. Oh, about the old man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he's talking about, he's like, the first 90% of, of mastering something is kind of the easy part. You know, it's like you... He's like it's it's when you start shaving down those last four or five ten percent when you get to the when the margins get smaller. He's like that's when it's tough and that's to me that those are the masters like BB or Albert where they pared it down to the things that are going to stab you in the heart right. <laughs> or it's emotions like they are playing they are they have harnessed the energy of it and there's no throwaways there's nothing they play when they were at their peak there was nothing they played that you. You you could think of being any different, like you're like right. Not a note you would change. Did you have to go back to find that? Do you know what I mean? Like once you got the foundation. No, I I I think I was I was really lucky where. I think my natural instinct was yeah. that's what I cared about, and some of it came from my father. Like when he would listen to music, that's what he keyed in. You want to have that effect? He, he told me a story about um, about Dwayne and BB. And I forget who the other guitar player was, but they were all sitting in together 
And this guy was doing that thing where he was just shredding. Yeah. And just all over the stage. Yeah. And apparently, BB went and got a seat and put it down. He's like, why don't you sit down and play with us here for a minute? <laughs> and he would talk about how that would go on. And then BB would just lay out one note and just you could feel this wave of intensity through everyone knew you're like oh that was cold blooded <laughs> like he, you can do that shit all you want right but it you know it it it, it kind of reminds me of the uh the old cartoon with the the two dogs and the one just yipping around in a circle right, and it's right. just pow right <laughs> right, right oh i'm sorry about that <laughs> well that's interesting because like i'm just starting to sort of you know feel realize it mentally just as a like just because i you know i play what i play but in thinking about it for years one of the reasons why i was too insecure to really pursue it was i i didn't think i could be yeah, yeah. that that good but that's not the thing i know it's not yeah. the thing and and you know look it's different for everybody i mean there's periods you go through and if you're searching for something and you're actually breaking new ground all the time I don't care how many notes it takes to get there. Do it like the cold train, sheets sure. of sound period, right. whatever your trip you're on. But at the same time, when you play a note, a single note, it should all it should all be in there. Right. Every bit of it should be right. in that one sound. And you I I remember during uh you read those stories when Coltrane was kind of at his peak of just mastery. Right. Giant steps, all of this. There was this wave of people like, yeah, well, he can't play a ballad, you know. He can't. It's just everyone's got a yeah. somebody's got a bitch about something, right? right. So then he puts out this a whole record of yeah, ballads, and it's just the most beautiful, heartbreaking shit. Yeah, <laughs> fuck like, you. Yeah, he's like, you know what? If you can do both, <laughs> then go. He's for making it. choices. It's choices, though. Yeah, it's not. That's right. It's not out of fear. He wasn't right. playing that fast yeah, because yeah. he couldn't stop and lean on yeah. the note. It was because he was actually working through shit. Right. <laughs> he was breaking down musical right. barriers, and that's a whole different trip. You know, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you, you know, whether it's comedy or whatever, you yeah. go through these periods of just throwing shit against the wall and seeing what works, and then you, then you pare it down to the things that, yeah, that you know the 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 nuggets. Well, well, <laughs> you don't want to lean on them too much, but right. they're there. <laughs> but well, what's interesting about those boundaries, though, because like even when you listen to your when I listen to your first couple records, I mean, right away, even though you're a teenager, you're playing with big cats. It's big production. It's tight sound. You know what I mean? You're not in the garage. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, right away, you're pretty proficient, and you got an ear for production, obviously, and, and guys know how to produce you. But then, you know, not too long after that, whatever sort of compelled you towards that uh, that Indian music was like that's like no i have not heard that before that you you the way you can transition from i don't know what the style of playing is but sort of bringing together that with you know kind of like you know swamp blues and yeah, yeah. And, and and country blues is sort of tricky right but you know what's funny about that is going back to colonel bruce hampton yeah um it was around that time i got turned on to ali akbar khan yeah great sarod player Probably one of the great musicians. A sarod is like that's not a sitar; it's the other thing. It's like a fretless sitar. Uh huh. And uh, but so around that same time, we were on tour through Mississippi. We went to we went to the crossroads just to see the sights. We're in our fifteen mm-hmm. passenger van, and I I bought this. Uh, I was on a book of White Kick at the time. Yeah. But I got this record that uh, the great writer. Uh, Robert Palmer, not the musician. Yeah, the rock critic or yeah. music critic, yeah. He produced his record by this guy named Junior Kimbrell. Yeah, I know Junior Kimbrell. It's, it's great shit. Yeah, I think the record was called Most Things Haven't Worked Out. And at, at that time, I was listening to Delta Blues and Ali Akbar Khan. It was yeah. like, it was Indian and Delta. And 
the first track on the Junior Kimball record is this real droney thing, and then he starts singing, and it hit me. I was like, those are the same inflections. It's the same microtones. It's like it's the same. Yeah. There was a there was a humanity there that crossed over from the sound from India and this sound from Mississippi <laughs> that goes back to Africa. That goes all the way back. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, and there the, was, it's like to the primal sound. And, and it, <laughs> I mean, it, it was a, I remember the moment listening to it in the van where I was like, Holy shit, this is all kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I was reading that book, deep blues, the Robert Palmer book yeah. where he's tracing, he's tracing the different Delta musicians back to probably which tribe they came from right through their music and right. through the way they look that's it, right it's pretty fascinating you mean back man. to africa absolutely yeah and, so, and that stuff will never fail to hit you in that place <laughs> I, I fucking sit and listen to ravi shankar all day man i'm with you, I'm I, with you. I don't even know when that happened yeah but i just got that record uh live at the in hollywood where the hollywood record gotcha it's 71 or something cool. i think he's at someone's house Beautiful. You know, and it's just the whole process. But I can, you know, I don't think everybody can sit with that. Yeah. No, but for you. me, I'm like, I'm, I'm good. I, One chord. Go when, with it. When I need a, <laughs> when I need a slate cleaner, when I, you know, sometimes you feel like you, there's sometimes where the inspiration is easy to tap into. And then there's other times where you feel like you have to work for it. And when I get, when I feel like I'm running out of gas, yeah, there's a few records that I can put on that almost always clean the slate. And one of them is this Ali Akbar Khan. It's called it's Signature Series Volume Two. Yeah, and it's just, it's just the most beautiful melodies, and just something about the tone of that instrument and the way he goes about it. It, it reminds you what's special about music and why you do it. It's just, it's one of those like. Everything, yeah, right. everything lines back up. Right, and there's a few blues records. You put on a Howlin' Wolf record, and the sounds like your speaker's about to blow up. Yeah. You're like, oh yeah, yeah. oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, just dig in. Like, yeah, yeah, quit being a baby and yeah. play. Right. So, oh man, some of that stuff. What do you, when you knew you were like you had this natural knack for it? How did you outside of like having the the Colonel you know turn you on to shit? You know, what was the process for you to evolve as as a musician? Was there ever a point where you couldn't you you would listen to something and you couldn't figure it out? Or you how did you, you know, grow more? Did you ever take lessons or you know, I looking back on it, a lot of it was pretty amazing timing where I I felt like I ran into certain musicians when I needed to take the next step or be pushed a little bit. And, you know, being around people uh, when I was about 15, I met John Snyder, this producer that um, I played on this Junior Wells record with him in Louisiana. You play with Junior? Yeah. With, and, uh, oh, towards was, the end? Yeah, it was called Come On In This House. He had a bunch of slide players. And one of the guys that I played with, Bob Margolin, who was in Muddy's band right. for a while. Yeah. I did a lot of shows when I was a kid with him, 12 to 14. <laughs> with Muddy? No, with uh, Bob. Bob. Yeah. And they were looking for slide players, and Bob threw my name in the hat. So. Yeah. Uh, John called my parents' house in Jacksonville. Bob had the number, and yeah. they flew me out. And, and then I connected with John, and he started taking me around, and I played on a lot of different sessions with him. Just one, I went up to Levon Helms' place. I guess I was 16 at the time, and it was Rick, Rick Yeah, it was Rick Danko and Garth, and it was- No way. They did this tribute uh, to Bob Dylan, one track. Yeah. I think it was called One Too Many Mornings. And I kind of walked into it. I knew the band, but I didn't know it like I know it now. Right. So I kind of walked into it cold, and it was it was one of those time slows down moments. I was like, they they are onto some 
totally different trip here. Like yeah. I've I've never been around music like this. Where like what what was it exactly? There was just a an ease to it and a no one's in a hurry and like hey calm down like it's cool like because at first I was just there I was just there visiting right and then eventually they're like why don't you play a solo on right. this and right. Levon had just had his uh, throat cancer so yeah. he couldn't sing yeah. he was playing harmonica but chain smoking weed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a it was a fascinating scene. But I I took one pass, and Rick Danko was like, he's like, that's good. Just breathe through it a little more. And I never had anyone like really produce a solo, right? And so your first instinct is, what? Wait, yeah. wait, he's totally right. <laughs> like I'm on a totally different wavelength than these guys right now, right? And I slowed down, and I and I I got to that place, and I could feel you know you could just feel yourself. The space. Yeah, you just feel yourself get in it. Right. And and I got done, and I was like, hey, man, thanks for that. <laughs> like, breathe yeah, through I, it. I really appreciate that. Because I, I thought, I thought in general, that's how I played. Like, I, I left space. It's one of the things. That, right. You thought you there's did. there's different levels of that, apparently. <laughs> and you learned it from the Buddha Denko. <laughs> exactly. He was like, hey, uh, just breathe, man. It's cool. <laughs> and he's like one of the great, most you know, beautiful singers. Absolutely. Yeah. And and I, did, I honestly I didn't know at the time. Yeah. So after after I left that, I I learned pretty quickly because I dug into those records, Big Pink, and then, yeah. And I just remember thinking, All part of, of me thinking, I wish I would have known, but I'm kind of glad I didn't. Right. Because I, I, I didn't go in as a like a total a, fan. Right. I went in just like. Oh, cool. He must have been like, that must have been like, when was that? He didn't live much longer after no, that. No, it was, it was right towards the end, probably 96, I would say. Sweet guy. Oh, yeah. Ah, oh, man. It's such an amazing, you know, tradition and history. And it's hard, to, like, the weird thing about, I, I mean, I like to play blues and it's all I play and I get a lot of satisfaction out of it, but I don't listen to it as much. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's a weird thing that I go that, in and out. You do. Yeah, totally. Because there's something that happened with the blues where it just became uh, not only a populist music, but like any bar band could do pretty good blues. Oh, well, I don't listen to anything that's done now. No, no. No, I know. <laughs> no, yeah. But like, I think that's sort of what, what kind of diminished totally. it a no, little I, bit. Totally. No, I'm with you. It it definitely was, uh, it was taken down the wrong path and people took the wrong things from it. Mm -hmm. The simplicity they took from it. You're like, no, no, no. The point is mm -hmm. the humanity of it. <laughs> like yeah. that's the point, right? You were asking earlier, like what what shifted from just being a kid guitar player into yeah. like it. But it was this. It was that time where you mentioned the Indian classical stuff. I remember watching this footage of Ali Akbar Khan, and then you read about he had a college in San Rafael. Yeah, just the way he talked about music, the seriousness. Of yeah, it. and there was like it's, it's that. There's Colonel Bruce Hampton giving you a Christian Murdy book. You hear Bill Hicks for the first time, and then you have, you have this amazing, uh, just collision of all these, these concepts. Yeah, that basically come down to, like, quit whining, quit bullshitting people, and like get to it. Like, yeah. And and there was a there was a moment around fourteen years old, fifteen, where I was like, you know what, this came pretty easily to me up to this point. Right. But if we're gonna do it. It's time to like dig in, like just do it. Yeah, <laughs> like it's well. That's what I noticed you about dedicate your life to this thing. When I listen to it, you know, w you know, and I refresh my memory, and you know, the new the the stuff you're doing with Susan and the Tedeschi Trucks Band is different than what you did earlier in a way because you know it leans heavily on her playing on her lyrics, and, yeah. and you know, there's a, it's a different vibe. Totally. 
So when you're just playing without her and, you know, you've got, you know, singers coming and going. Yeah. But like there's there's a core to it that there was a point where you realized that, you know, you couldn't rest on your laurels, even though you were a virtuoso and that in order for you to find your style, because like I listened to it and no one, you know, at a certain point, no one's playing like you because you've integrated all that shit. Like that stuff becomes your plan. Yeah, yeah. That the way yeah. you can move from from that uh, Indian style to you know to rock to minor blues to major blues to country, like you know you've integrated it all and it, and it's yours now, right? Yeah, and and I think I think about it sometimes. The way you listen to music, I think about athletes and like the the chemicals and food you would put into your body. Right, like you have to be really careful what you listen to because when you're improvising. It all sneaks in, but that's okay though. I mean, no, it, it is. But I, it's like you gotta, you can't listen to too much trivial bullshit. Like on your spare time, right? You like the music should mean something. It should be a melody you're okay with sneaking out in the middle of. Well, that well that's <laughs> well that's the other problem with fucking blues is that you know you're gonna cop riffs. There's no other way. You're Absolutely, gonna, and and yeah. and it's not even bad. No, but it's not. but but there are certain riffs that are heavily identifiable as people's riffs. Yeah, and then there's like some people that just have some sort of magic twist on it. Like I'm a big Peter Green freak, and you know those first you know three Fleetwood Mac records. Like that guy could play a minor blues. Like I don't think anyone else could. And and it's funny because a lot is revealed in like you were talking earlier the vibrato or just the right. tone or the way you approach things. And you know, knowing his, knowing the arc of his life and career now, Peter. you can look it's Peter. Yeah, you can look back and you're like, oh, there was like there's a lot of conflicting things going. There's a vulnerability to his playing yeah. that you can't you can't cop that. Yeah, like it, was, it was I think it was killing him. Absolutely. And and you hear that and yep. there's something incredibly compelling about that. It's like most of our favorite musicians well did, there's something in there that like right. that they're working through, you know. But like not like but the weird thing is is with Eric, I mean, you know, Clapton kind of like I liked all that Mayall stuff. Yeah. And I like the blues breaker stuff and I like, you know, like some of the and cream was okay just because of like the development of the riff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like I, I kinda like I think he's a proficient player, but I'm not moved the way I am yeah. with guys who flash early and went away. Yeah. No, but there's you, there's something to that. And there, there was there was times on that tour. You how you did a bunch of dates with him? A little over a year. Oh yeah. Me and Doyle Bramhall and and uh there were times on that tour where he would pull that trump card out of his back pocket and light it up. I remember one we were in, in Denmark, and, and I was like, "Oh, he could do it." I was like, "Oh, that's there." Yeah. Like it was, it was. It's a, weird, it, right? It is a weird thing. It is I know because like he did. Like I've seen that happen. Yeah, where like even on, um, even like when you watch the last waltz, like yeah. you know post post cream you know yeah. and, and him trying to be the band or doing whatever he's doing with slow hand and you know uh the, the other stuff like whatever he's trying to do musically where like there are these moments where you're like oh he can fucking light that guitar oh yeah yeah and it's like why isn't he doing it all the time you know? <laughs> there's there's something to that and and there's but there's a, a little bit but of when like did, when did he do it when were the moments where you were, I, I remember one in denmark just yeah. some random show we did yeah. and we did 26 countries on that tour something and like he's that. playing the full catalog bits and pieces we from were his... doing a lot of the domino stuff by that point in the tour so you guys would get on stage together at the end you'd do separate sets no and... I, I was in his band oh that's how it went yeah it, it was three guitar players it was me doyle bramhall and eric which was pretty fascinating because... and you were touring derek and the dominoes basically I, I mean it was his his solo stuff but towards the middle of the tour there was a good portion of the the show that was the dominoes so you're stuff. almost all slide yeah 
I, I was probably 60, 40. Uh-huh. Yeah. And were you, what, so what were you learning from him? Anything? Well, there was a few things. I mean, he was a great band leader. Like yeah. He, he was able to pull things out of the band. Yeah. Without directly asking for it, uh-huh. which I found pretty fascinating. And there's, I mean, there is something about the longevity, man, of being able to keep on the road and keep a career together that long and keep keep your game together. Like, he could still play. I mean, I've, I've been around a lot of musicians yeah. that it comes and goes. Right. Like, actually comes and goes. <laughs> like, right. They can't play at all. <laughs> really? <laughs> so, you know what yeah. I mean? It's yeah. Like, and he, there's, there is a, a, a respect that he gives to the overall craft that that really that that kept it going. Well, and, well, I think that's what what his bag became. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you know when I met him, it was on the JJ Kale record. I, I was a part of that, and and seeing the way, at least at that point of his career, he was kind of going, going back and paying homage to his heroes. Yeah. And he you know it was a it was a very it seemed like a very thought out thing he was doing. Well, well, he came back around to what we're talking about that. Like he eventually sort of looped back around to uh, a a real simplicity. Yeah. He did that blues record and he kind of stayed on that path. He did the thing with BB. Yeah. Which is amazing. From the cradle was the blues record. Like it's funny as like, as weirdly contentious my relationship with him is, you know, my mind musically. Yeah. I've listened to all this shit. Yeah. No, I hear you. (laughs) And, and uh, I mean, think about this. BB King's first gold record was, Riding with the king, <laughs> really? It's not an, just a, it's insane. Uh, were you about to say abomination? <laughs> no, it totally. I mean, it, it's insane. But the weird thing about Eric, though, and I imagine you sitting there playing with him, was like, you know, you hear his runs, and you're like, I know that run, <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're playing a tune, and you're like, oh wait, we're playing Layla with Eric. Yeah, it's kind of a trip. Because I, I was named after that record, right? You know, right. and so my dad, who's a roofer in Jacksonville, Florida, <laughs> well, I flew him over to the Albert Hall shows, and we went out to Clapton's place in the in the country. Yeah, I see my dad, the roofer, like having hide tea with <laughs> with Eric. I was like, what a weird life we're. Did he leading. love it? <laughs> oh yeah, he did. he was pumped. He must have loved Papa it. Trucks was pumped. So wait, so what happened in Denmark? He lit it up. Oh, he just had one of those nights where just out of the blue. I mean, the tour is going great, shows are good, and then there was just one night where I don't know what got into him or <laughs> right. up his crawl, but yeah. he just. I was like, oh, that's that guy's I in got, there. I get it. Yeah, that guy's like, All right. right. And I don't know if it was just like. Hey, motherfuckers, uh, just in case you were wondering, right. <laughs> I don't know if it was that or just the spirit moves you sometimes. It's, who knows? I mean, I try to figure these things out because we play almost every night. We're on the road 200 days a year. What kind of guitar was he playing? Strat? A Strat. There was one night I got him to play a 59 Les Paul because somebody lent me one and he broke his out. And I think the struggle of playing a guitar that was physically harder to play was awesome <laughs> and yeah. that that was a night too that was one of the Wrestling other ones with it yeah it was like he had to manhandle that thing. because but but that was it though because that was his tone for years absolutely i mean the strat was later right totally and that that fucking gibson that was when he screamed man. no when he you know when he had the sg and the woman yeah. tone i mean those are those are things people are still trying to sort out right you mean tonally? Absolutely. You're like, well, that? that's the other thing that comes with the simplicity thing we're talking about is that, you know, part of it is the space and the breath and everything else and those notes. But then, you know, choosing a tone, which took me a long time to, that resonates with you. Yeah. Like you say, you're not a pedal guy. And I know a lot of cats now that, you know, Blake's not really a pedal guy. My buddy, Matt Sweeney, he don't do pedals. Yeah. You're just playing with these old fucking tubes. <laughs> Neil Young, <laughs> you know, like you're just wrestling. Like Neil, I had him in here and like, he's got a fucking contract up there 
that is like a bunch of amps together that only one guy knows how to work <laughs> totally. and they're all old yeah and like literally every night he's like i don't know if it's gonna make it through the show no and that's part of the beauty i mean that's <laughs> like with electricity no every night like we i'll call our, our monitor engineer is my guitar tech too and i'll call him over I'm like, man, what's the voltage in this room? It's hot, isn't it? He's like, yeah, it's 123. Like, you can tell when your amp is running too hot because yeah. it gets too crunchy. Yeah. We're like, all right, let's let's swap out some power tubes. Let's try something else. Like, you're all really? night. It's just, you, I mean, there's some nights where it sings and you're like, that's it. Right. Tomorrow's going to be great. And yeah. It's just horseshit. <laughs> it's like it, it disappears <laughs> so quickly, man. It's uh, yeah. but that's that's part of the beauty, man. He, if if you could lock it down, it would get boring quick. <laughs> yeah. So now, when when do you step up? Like, how old were you when you first played with the Almond Brothers? Well. The first time I was on stage with him, I, I was playing this little club in South Florida on South Beach. I was maybe 10. Yeah. And they were they were getting back together in, I guess, 89. Um, and they all came and set in. With Dickie? No, it was, it was Greg, my yeah. uncle, Warren, yeah, and uh, Alan Woody. And there was this, there's this picture. The, the stage was above the bar, so it's all liquor bottles and then this 10-year-old kid and my... My grandfather at the time, he had a picture in his house, but he covered up the liquor bottles. <laughs> I remember that photo. So that's the first time I played with him. But I joined the band at 19. Yeah. So in 99, I joined. What's your relationship with Greg? You know, and since you were a kid, was he regular in your life or, you, you know, like? It, you know, it was always in and out, that whole scene. Um, I mean, when well, I he was- He knew you. Yeah. When I was first starting, um, I wasn't around that stuff at all. And then I ran into them at that club and- uh I remember Greg and his guy pulling me aside and giving me one of Dwayne's slides, which was just a life God, everyone's, highlight. Everyone's giving you that. You're like, you're the guy. <laughs> so here's here are the ritual. Uh, yeah, the artifacts. Yeah, so that that's a relic that sits in the house. Yeah. Um, but then you know, Greg was he was pretty in and out of it at that time. So I would see him liver wise and just you know his head was in a lot of places. But I saw him recently, like just like walk behind me at a hotel in New York. I didn't realize how short he was. Number one, and number two, I'm like, is that a ghost? Yeah, no, he's you know he's been dealing with some health stuff lately too. But then I I guess at 14 he flew me out to California and I played in his solo band for a tour or two, and you know people always. You always get these questions like, anybody ever give you good life advice? And I was like, no one ever really does that. Like, it never happens. But there was one moment with Greg where I, we went for a ride in his, uh, I think he had this, I think it was a, a vet. Yeah. On the back it said, Bay, baby bro. Yeah. Like, that was his, it was Dwayne's little brother, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we we went for this ride up up towards the Lucas uh, Studios, Lucas Ranch. Yeah. So it's just beautiful drive. and. First time I'd ever been in a real sports car that you can get on it. He let me get behind the wheel for a minute. I was like, "Oh, this is amazing!" Yeah. <laughs> and then we pull over, and and he and he gets really serious, man. Yeah. And, and he's like, he's like, if all the all the potholes and all the dark trips I've been on are not being vain, like somebody needs to learn from it. And he showed me he showed me his arm, yeah. you know, like scars the track marks and yeah shit. and he's like you can do a lot of things he's like do not fuck around with it and th- and that's it's one of the very few i was in a band with him for 15 years after that and there was never any moment like that like it was just out of the blue and i don't know if he i bet he doesn't remember it like it was it was in a pretty dark period for him yeah and uh 
but he got deadly serious and it was a it was a moment that i i remember clearly man because I, I wasn't expecting any of that yeah <laughs> i was like this is just a fun ride in a car with right. a, a hero of mine <laughs> right and then it got real serious yeah but you know that, those are some things you take to heart <laughs> well yeah that was a guy that never got <laughs> so, out of the grips of it absolutely and you know and and it was uh it was a real moment and you you know you no matter what happens after that with a relationship with somebody you you always appreciate those things did it scare you enough oh yeah that's, <laughs> I, I, I fucked around with a lot of things that's not one of them <laughs> it leveled a lot of dudes absolutely you know oh, and, yeah. and the, i mean the sad truth is there's some amazing music that came out of that stuff amazing art but it mm-hmm. took it took most people down with it you know well it's one of those things that like it it's one of those, you, you know, I can appreciate it as what it would do for somebody. It it definitely shuts out all the other noise. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, and you can't listen to a record like Kind of Blue or right. any of that and, and, and not realize that that was a big part of the, the Yeah, vibe, how are you going to you know? find that space? How yeah. are you going to find that space? Yeah, and but then you, you're like, wow, it, there were a lot of casualties. Yeah. I mean, Coltrane was one of the very few that was able to just kick it yeah cold turkey and then but then you know, love supreme came out of that man he sat in his room for four days and just sweated it out sweated out love supreme yeah sweated out drugs and talk to- all the toxins and then came out with the yep. theme to that and ready to record pretty yeah. pretty amazing story but also like allman i think he doesn't get the credit for being as good a singer as he is he's like a great singer one of the great i mean that, singers. Th- to me that's the difference between that band and a lot of the other um jam bands a yeah. sorry term but it's yeah. uh none of them had a singer that could do what otis did or not you know it's yeah, not otis yeah. but it's in that realm yeah yeah it's like yeah. that shit holds up yeah you know they no, they great. they could they could take it hard left hard right they could take it to the hoop musically and yeah. then you got this guy that can just belt i mean that's the, yeah that's kind of the uh magic formula <laughs> yeah and what did, did you did he ever talk about Dwayne with you a bit yeah yeah you know that there was there was some funny moments. I mean, Dwayne's Dwayne's spirit loomed large over that band the whole time I was in it too. I mean, there would be there would be musical conflicts that would go on, and then you would almost you would almost see Dwayne in Greg's ear, and then he would be like, "You know what? I take that back." Like, <laughs> I mean, there was one time when Jimmy Herring was in the band um, for one year between Dickie and Warren coming back, and we. We did Mountain Jam, which Red Dog, the original roadie who was there forever. Yeah. Um, he he was like, man, you guys got to take it out. Like when Dwayne was here, he would just it would go anywhere. Like don't don't play the same themes. Like he would just always needle us. Yeah. And we, we'd get done. He's like, yeah, it was all right, but like not nearly far enough. And so <laughs> so we're like, oh, we could we can take it out. And so there was one night. I think we were maybe at Virginia Beach or just some random yeah. gig, and it went. It went out. Like it went sunrise out. Like it went just deconstruction and everybody was on board? Not everybody. <laughs> so so that night we get we get back on the bus and it's it's me and O'Teal and, and Jimmy Herring and, and Greg and then the drummers are on the other bus and we're up front, we're like, Oh, that was pretty that was fun and Greg comes on, he's like, All right, who's the fucking fish fan? <laughs> and I was like, Not me, I don't fucking like fish at all <laughs> And he goes to the back of the bus or no, so after that he says, uh he's like you know what that was just that was too much like that's that ain't what we do and like he kind of kind of leaned into us which he had never done uh-huh. then he goes to the back of the bus and door shuts and, and we're like well that was fun while it lasted <laughs> and then not 10 minutes later he comes back up and he goes 
he looks at me, he's like, man, me and my brother used to go round and round about that shit. You guys play whatever you want. I'm sorry about that. And then he disappeared again. <laughs> I was like, what just happened? I was like, he went back there and Dwayne was like, you little motherfucker. Like, he, he totally... He's he still totally talking got to yelled at yeah. 30 years after his death. I was like, that's, it was an amazing moment. <laughs> and what about that roadie? Was he, did he, did he? Oh, he loved it that <laughs> night. He was pumped. Dude, Red Dog was a legend, man. Red that's, Dog was, he was a, he was a Vietnam vet, got wounded, sent home, and then re-enlisted because he was like, I'm never going to get that adrenaline rush again. Red Dog was insane. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but, but he was one of those guys that would take a bullet for, for the band. Like he was, he was the quintessential roadie yeah he's he's one of the roadies that should be in the rock and roll hall of fame like maybe he will he there, there needs to be a petition for that right <laughs> there's a few guys in the dead camp and red dog and joe dan from the almond brothers they they were lifers yeah in, in, the, in a very real sense so now uh i listen to some of the the latest record with the uh, the tedeschi trucks band and it sounds great man and then what's the big difference in in working with your wife um you know, it's been it's been so she's much a, easier than a, I thought it would be. I gotta she's say, a good player. Oh yeah, no, Susan is amazing. It, when we put this band together, we intentionally kind of scrapped what her band did, what yeah. my band did, and we started just from a, with a seed. And I, I think three records in, I think it's starting to the lid has finally come off, and I I feel like like this tour, especially the the shows have been really exploratory, and I feel like it's. We're gonna do a live record from this tour, and there's some, there's been some pretty inspired moments. I feel like now it's getting back to the best of what maybe my solo band was tapping into, and the best of what her thing was doing. I feel like it's it's finally got its sea legs. When we when Tim LaFave came on board about two years ago, a bass player, uh-huh. um, I think he was kind of that missing link, a guy that could just play bass when he needed to, yeah, but harmonically he can hear anything. Uh-huh. And he, I mean, he played in the fifty-five bar for years, just avant-garde trio with uh-huh. Wayne Krantz, like really exploratory stuff. He did that last Bowie record, uh, Black Star. Yeah, um, Tim is an amazing player, but him and Kofi, the keyboard player in this group, um, they they're like they're the closest to musical genius borderline that that i've been on stage with yeah. like they can it doesn't matter what it is they they're on your on yeah. your ass man. yeah yeah <laughs> so that it that stuff we finally got we've gotten to the point where um it doesn't matter what happens on stage everybody's ready to just take a turn at yeah. any, any given moment in any tune like there's nothing no, nothing's off limits so yeah that, that's a fun place to be i i think the last three or four months with this band has been it's been the it's been the most growth I've I've been a part of within a group, so it's it's a it's a good place. Well, that's great. So yeah. you feel like there's there's a whole world of possibility, and there's <clears> room, <throat> and you're still kind of pushing the envelope. Absolutely, and the musicianship, um, I, I, there's no ceiling. I, I haven't found the ceiling yet. I well, haven't found great. I haven't found the spot where it's like, all right, well, we can kind of do that, but not right. really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, that's a good place to be. And the two drummers, man, they are connected at the hip. Yeah, they, they have a thing. Yeah, and you like two drummers. I do. You know, after a few years with the Almond Brothers, and then towards the end of that Clapton tour, he had a second guy out. I was watching this old Otis Redding footage, and there's just something about two drummers, man. What is it? It's. I mean, it it gets tribal. <laughs> I mean, it gets. I mean, there's sometimes when that thing gets rolling, and if you don't, if you're not getting on it, you're gonna get 
fucking plowed under the earth. <laughs> so, I mean, there's there's a little bit of like fear. You're like, oh yeah. shit, <laughs> I got to get on. That's right? Yeah, better, yeah, yeah. I better step on the gas. And what's it? How's your draw? Good people coming out. It's man. It's it's been slowly but surely things have been taken up. I've my manager uh, Blake, who originally was riding in the van with us for the first four years, just road dogging it. Um, he's been with me 22 years, and he he uh, he hit me to the fact that every year there's the draw has been a little bit better. Yeah, we haven't had any huge jumps, but every single year for 22 years. I mean, it's easy when you're starting at like 12 people a night right. <laughs> to get up to 30. But you think but, you're picking up a little of that almond swack and a little bit of that, you know, the the whether you're their jam bandy or not. But that that audience, I think there's certainly a void that that we're picking yeah. up on. I, I think there was a there was a a time where me being in the Almond Brothers and doing other things in some ways would eat into our crowd. Yeah, because people were like, well. We just saw him here, you know, there's some of that. There's that kid again. Yeah. And then there's, and then there's, you know, the, the band, as it gets better, people start talking, you know, there's, it's all word of mouth these days. There's no, you don't sell records anymore. Right. But he also got that expanse of like, you know, good sort of like heartfelt singing, good, you know, blues, rhythm, blues, you know, whatever. And then, and then you got that whole other world of like, just high-minded music yeah, yeah i hear you right Muso shit yeah right <laughs> they're true. coming out right absolutely yeah you know it's funny we were in san francisco um we did oh well, we did two nights in oakland at the fox theater and uh renee fleming the opera singer is a huge susan fan which is an amazing thought yeah that's yeah, <laughs> like, great and we went and saw her at the opening of the, the san francisco orchestra and she's out there belting out puccini and it's this beautiful thing and then, right and then we get done with the show and she's like have you heard susan sing i was like this is beautiful it's great <laughs> it's an amazing she must have loved that oh she was lo- she was beaming <laughs> all right well man it was an honor talking to you man likewise man uh appreciate I'll, you having me yeah it was great i'm glad we did it great Okay, what wasn't that nice? I love that guy. We text sometimes. He sends me pictures and I send him things and it's uh, like he's a he, I think he's a he's a pal. Guitar genius and pal. Oh mine. All right, I'm going to play some guitar, but don't tell Derek. This is a uh, more in the um, the Mark the Mark Marin massage music catalog. Done with um new agey effects. <laughs> 